Assalamu alaikum. Can you both hear me? Assalamu alaikum. How are you? Alaikum. All right. Let me pull up the book. Uh, were you both in the meeting last week? No. Okay. I was. You were? Okay. In case I forget where we left off. Okay. And it looks like we also have Aman and Farah. All right, let me um, share the screen. Hey, Farah, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Alhamdulillah. All right, can you all see this? Yes. Okay, so, so Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We've been exploring the first letter, and here he's just talking about why he's writing this book to his son, and he's giving this example of of how when he was when the son was a kid, um, the kid the kid's name is Saif. When Saif was a kid, you know he started to develop his his religious identity, and he comes home. The kid comes home one day influenced by this one teacher who is sort of like a hardliner and was giving an impression of what does it mean to be a good Muslim and such, and was also very exclusivist, uh, especially in terms of criticism of Jews, criticisms of Shias and such. And, and so we had some discussion last time about, about when did we start forming our own Islam, our own identity as well. And, and let's start with uh, let's continue this letter. How much more do we have? Okay. Uh, who would like to read for us? Let's start with recently I celebrated. Can you all see this clearly on your screen? Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to volunteer to read? I can read. Go for it. Fada. You're, I guess you're, you are somebody the elder in the room. So thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Um, recently I celebrated my 43rd birthday. I had been waiting for this particular birthday for a long time. From the age of 19, uh, both, years, both years were of immense importance to me as I grew up and matured. As you know, your grandfather, Safe, my father, was killed in a terrorist attack in 1977. My father was 43 when he died. When I was your age, I used to think that 43 was a big number. Now that I have passed 43, I feel that life is only just beginning for me. Before I go on, let me tell you why 19 was also such an important birthday for me. When I was 12, I discovered that the man who killed my father was 19 when he did what he did. 19. When I was 12, I was asked myself whether I would be able to kill a man when I turned 19. I waited for the day and then I asked myself the question. The answer was no. No way. Not in a million years could I lift a gun or a rifle and shoot another man. I felt like I was still a 12-year-old. Okay, let's pause for a second. Thank you for that. And, and try to think back to what your mindset was like at both of those years. So at 12, and then some of you might not yet be 19. And so think of what your mindset is like right now compared to when you were uh, at 12 years old. What would you suggest are some differences between how old you are now versus back then in terms of how you look at the world, how you look at life? What do you think? Anything? Um, I think when I was 12, um, like, uh, like I'm just thinking about like middle school and like adolescence, like every 
little thing that happened seemed so important and like life-changing and um like both negative and positively both in a negative way and a positive way but then now I feel like things don't impact me in like as much of a drastic way especially if they're just like little things versus back then Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good observation uh, especially because you'll all see inshallah if Allah Allah wills for you to live that long and inshallah the answer is yes uh you'll see that you're going to like being, and the older students have heard this from me many times already, you're going to like being 30 way more than you like being 20. And a big reason is by the time you get to 30, uh, a lot less bothers you. Meaning part of the reason when you're 12 that everything bothers you is you don't really understand what's important, what's not important. And when you're 19, when you're 20, you have a better understanding. And when you're 30, you have a better understanding. And so he's, so he's talking about when he turned 43. And so, so I'm mashallah now 48. And I can say even my second half of my 40s are way better than when I turned 40, which is way better than when I turned 30, which is way better than when I turned 20. And a fundamental aspect of it is, is just a better understanding of life. But part of the reason is because by the time you're my age, you're going to have gone through a whole lot of intense struggles. You know, some of you might have already gone through some intense struggles already in your life. Uh, if you have or have not, you will go through uh, struggles and you will go through more struggles. And those are going to force you just to just to, to form you. And, and, so, uh, and so, yeah, I've been through some very huge dark periods of my life, very, very dark periods. And it even feels like the last, you know, four or five years have been some of the best years of my life. And a big reason is just simply uh, having a better understanding of how life works and thus me even being more comfortable with myself and the world. And, and, and yeah, uh, let's continue. I'm muted, okay. Um, I looked forward to the age of 43 and I knew I would ask myself whether I could imagine my life ending at 43. When my birthday came, I felt the horror of having barely scratched life. I remember thinking how little time I had spent with you. I thought back to my father and imagined the horror he must have felt as he realized that his life was slipping away from him. My siblings and I, your uncles and aunt, were all under the age of 10 when your grandfather died. I look at you and I know how much more time I spend with you because of this fear and even this is not enough. Okay, so I am writing this book for you because... I just to pause you, interrupt you for a second. Uh, uh, another point I'd like you to all consider for for life beyond college and when, inshallah, uh, y'all get married and have children is one of the big choices you're going to have to face in life is how much time do I put in outside of the house uh, so that I can provide myself and my family with whatever lifestyle I want. And what will happen with a lot of your friends and they're not going to realize that a lot of your peers is that they're going to spend a whole lot of time outside of the house convincing themselves it's to give you know the 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 best lifestyle they possibly can have to their kids and those parents are often my job security because there's the best thing that you can give to your child is time and part of time is is emotional nourishment and emotional nurturing so what happens very often is parents will give their child every single device and, and, and hopefully that's sufficient. And I mean, everyone has to work a certain amount of hours a day, whether it's inside of the house or outside of the house. Uh, but then you'll have a lot of parents that will spend 
uh, their time outside of the house, and then they come home and they're just tired and angry the whole day. Um, or they'll spend so much time focused on professional development to give their kid everything, except they won't give them time. And when they give them time, they don't give them uh, emotional nurturing. So I've mentioned this last time. Think of yourself as being obliged to write a book like this for your children. And so you may or may not have a relationship like this with your own parents, but whatever your relationship is like with your parents, try to write a book like this for your child. And, and essentially, it's like rites of passage. It's like you're giving your child advice on, on how to, you know, the issues you faced in life to, and try, try to give them a head start. And so keep that in mind. Okay, uh, continue. Um, I am writing this book for you because I want you to have a piece of paper that will be there long after I am gone. I want to give you some of the love and guidance that I wish my father had been able to give me when I was your age and older. I am writing this set of letters to you because I want you to have some, some idea of the questions you will face and some of the answers that are out there. I do not want you to hear it from others. I do not want you to learn the most important lessons in life from people who do not love you as I love you. I want you to hear the lessons from the person who loves you most. If you think that I worry too much about you, I know that I worry, know that I worry only about you. Mm -hmm. uh, give me just a second. There's some people trying to get into the class who, who can't. Yeah. Okay, so so back to uh, what what uh, what you're reading uh, again, and this this part you all know, understand, you already um, you know intuitively. At the end of the day, whatever relationship you have with your folks, no one's going to love you the way your folks do, right? And no matter what advice I give to you, time from me is never going to be compared to time that your folks give to you, you know. But likewise, I especially want you to think about that regarding you and your children. And so then, um, okay, yeah, let's go to the next paragraph. Um, I want you to know about the things I believe after more than 30 years of thinking about my father's death. His death forced me to try to answer a bunch of difficult questions. It shaped the way in which I view the world. In these letters, I will tell you how I saw the world around me when I was younger, when I was your age and when I was a little older, and how I see similar things happening to you. I want you to know that the questions you face and the solutions you find or are presented with are solutions that many of us were, f were faced with as well. Mm -hmm. So another one thing that, that some of you will hear me periodically say is that I wish there was a way for me to share everything, like an anonymous way for me to share everything that students come to my office with, uh, whether it's academic problems, family problems, personal problems, what have you, uh, because then so many of you'll realize that even though you feel alone in what you're dealing with, uh, a whole bunch of your peers are dealing with the exact same thing. And even talking, looking at, you know, those of you who are in this class, some of you have even approached me on the exactly the same issues that are going on in your life. I'm not going to share what, who and what and such, but I wish there was a way I could, I could write that down. Or maybe what I might do, an idea I had before was just to put like a chart together. These are all the issues that I've had in September, you know, uh, that students have come to me with. So, for example, I'll give you a very simple thing. Today, uh, I had a student who came to me who had a relationship with a the guy. They're getting they're getting ready to get married, and her 
and then his parents said no because they're two different ethnicities and and they're actually two different types of arab and and his parents were like no and far as like oh man too bad and so but then the the uh and so she's devastated and and she has classes with him also and he didn't stand up for her at all right it was basically his parents said no and he said okay and she's completely heartbroken and such and she's the third person this week that i've had in almost exactly that situation and it's only wednesday and and so the point is that uh it may not help to know that it does it may not help you get through something to know that other people are going through the same thing but it will help you in the feeling that you're alone that will help uh, quite a bit okay uh so that goes to this point you know these are all solutions that many of us were faced with as well very good uh let's go to the next one who would like to read the next letter who wants to volunteer somebody's got to volunteer who's going to volunteer we'll just sit here i'll drink my water nobody wants to volunteer everybody wants to wait for someone else to read <sighs> Hmm. Is it y'all can't hear me when I'm asking if someone will volunteer to read? I'll, I'll read. Okay, fantastic. Go for it. Yes. Um, Habibi Saif, you are growing up in a world that is radically different from the world of the 1970s and 1980s in which I grew up. Even though I'm only 20 years or so older than you, in today's world, you have access to all the information that you could want about the most obscure ideas events and movements you and i are overwhelmed by the media coverage of islam and muslims intertwined with the constant linkage um it's blocked oh with terrorism and religiously inspired violence and okay there do you want me to start from the top yeah you find that it is difficult to be a Muslim and live in societies that seem to be made up of lonely, sullen, and isolated individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's stop right there for a second. So, so okay, so some of the obvious points you already well know that the world is very different than when your parents were your age. And another point that you've already probably heard many times is uh, try to imagine what life was like back in the day before email. So I'm saying before social media, before the internet, before email, and how we would communicate with each other, how we would formulate our understanding of the world. And, and so to put it one way, so a hit television show right now uh, will have give or take probably like a good successful show will probably have like 10 million viewers. Okay. In the 80s, when all we had was like five channels, no internet or something, a hit television show like Friends, Seinfeld, you know, Cosby Show, MASH, I don't know how many of these you've heard of, you've probably heard of Friends because it's always on, but um, they would have 100 million viewers because that's all that's going on. And another difference related to that is because everyone had the same five or six channels to watch, there are basically three national channels, ABC, NBC, CBS, there's PBS, and then a couple local channels. Uh, 
that was basically your source of information for for all news and and because there wasn't this competition in the internet and getting the story out right away the the reporters would process and really try to thoroughly dig deep to get a story before sharing with us so the understanding of what was happening was much more limited uh, but you had a more thorough understanding now with the internet you know you have people that are churning out stories immediately or they'll just uh, report it on social media right away and it's very easy to fall into an echo chamber so it's very easy to fall into your circle of social media friends where all you're hearing is the same stories over and over again. Yet the person in, in the room or the office next to you is a completely different view of the world because of what they're consuming. And, and, and so that's something unique about our era. Uh, and so the, the end result is this, this huge amount of you know, loneliness and isolation. It's uh, in some ways social media is nice in terms of how it's bringing people together in one stop connection. In other ways, it's it's destructive because it's also isolating everybody from everybody else. All right, uh, Imad, please continue. Where is the meaning and purpose in all of this? When you think about the history that you are a part of, the history of a young religion with a blessed prophet named Muhammad who set the world on fire with the divine revelation that he carried, it is difficult to accept the mundanity, mundanity of the world you live in. Of course, there are technological wonders that appear almost daily. These technologies intrigue and entertain. They satisfy and they fill your day with activity, but they have also taken over your time, even as they are meant to be of service to you. The technologies that surround us seem to free us, but there is the niggling doubt that they have enslaved us by appearing to our wildest personal whims. There is the empty electrical buzz that we are left with after a day online, checking um, Go to the posts, yeah. looking for information, and then being sidetracked by interesting articles. You might compensate by looking at some of the Muslim websites you watch, you listen, you read, you absorb, the West offers temptations, both physical and moral temptations. Freedom is worshipped and the body is yours to use as you wish. The Islamic scholars online, the Oma, those who have knowledge, have a vision of world where Islam and the Muslims are the center, where the Muslims set the agenda, deploy power, develop technologies, decide outcomes. The Ulama online have a plan for how this is all going to happen. Okay, so this I think is all pretty straightforward, right? Uh, uh, the basic point being that I would emphasize is is the fact that we've gotten so used to being consumers in terms of how we look at the world, right? You just take in information, take in information, take in information as consumers, and that shifts us from being producers, and it shifts us away from action. It's just take it in, take it in, take it in to the point that you almost feel like, okay, I need more knowledge, I need more knowledge, I need to understand more. Uh, but there's a part of you, especially for your generation, especially for the younger ones here, uh, where you just feel like you need action. And this we noticed with, with the first years last year is for whatever MSA events they were doing, they kept asking, can we have stuff that's interactive? And, and I think that's also just like a natural need for action and, and, and interaction that we will also probably see more of among uh, the, the younger and, and younger people. And then we have this group of people, the scholars, the ulama, 
the Wow Dictionary. And so, so uh, as you know, that's our general term for, for uh, Islamic scholarship. And then they also have a particular vision of the world. Uh, I don't know that I agree where he'd say where Islam and Muslims are at the center, maybe where God is at the center. And the facility for that is, is Islam, or the way to make that happen would be uh, Islam. Okay, continue. You are told that it is inherent with our, within our religion to be the dominant player. All the rules that we know about are written for an Islamic society that dominates others or at least confidently holds them at bay at arm's length. We will give you peace if you are peaceful. Otherwise, beware. Islam was dominant from the time the Prophet Muhammad converted the people of Mecca to Islam till an Islamic empire was established from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to Central Asia. Why should this not be the case again? Of today's global population of 7 billion people, 1.7 billion are Muslim. Many studies tell us that Islam is a young religion and is growing and spreading faster than any other religion. Okay, let's take a look at that. Uh... I don't know if this is how we teach Islam in Sunday schools and full-time Islamic schools here as much. What do you think that that the purpose, you know, that uh, our purpose is to be dominant on the globe? What do you think? How would you say Islam is taught here? You know, right or wrong? Uh, what do you think? Um, sorry, you. No, no, no. After you. After you. No, you go first. No, no, no. no after you. All right, one of you go. How about Aman? You go first. All right, fine. Um, at least the classes I went to growing up, the concept of domination was never a thing. For us, it was the core was pluralism. So it was more like we're a part of a very diverse society. We need to play our part and we need to work with others in order to build a positive future. That was the mindset we were taught. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think, Mohammed? Yeah, so like basically the same thing. I was, you know, taught like, um, you know, kind of like how Yasser Gandhi teaches. I was kind of like taught like that and how like there's five phases of da'wah and like the fifth phase is like when you're in a Muslim government and like we as like Americans or immigrants or whatnot or as Muslims in this country, we're not in a Muslim, what's it called, majority government or Muslim controlling government. So that's mm -hmm. not how we should act. We should act as, well, you know, not like that. Mm -hmm. Sure. Anyone else want to share? Try to, if you could sum up uh, what you were raised to, to understand about how Islam should be, or we as a population should be, in relationship with, with anyone else. Because I think uh, both what he's saying in the book and what both Muhammad and Aman said, I think you can argue all three of them in terms of our sources. Uh, but anyone else? Um, I feel like for me, I wasn't really taught that. I think more of what Muhammad was saying about like how we're kind of not in a Muslim majority country so we have to act a certain way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyone else? I'm going to chime in. I'm probably much older than you guys. I'm in my 30s and I'm a law student uh, at Loyola. Um, I grew up in Houston so among Yasser Qadi and you know those scholars. Um, yeah. It was my MS back in the day of high school and then later in college. So I went to U of H. Um, I, it, I don't know, maybe to uh, Sheikh, it gives you or to, uh, you know, it gives you a little bit of perspective. So, yes, I do remember back in those days, like early 2000s, when like 9-11 took place and stuff, this kind of thinking 
was a little more prevalent versus now. Um, and even the tone of Yasser Qadi and a bunch of scholars has changed. It's <laughs> often quite a bit. Yeah, yeah uh, has become a little bit more pluralistic uh, than it used to be. So um, I do remember not, not explicitly being told these things, but it was always just like the author talks about, it was kind of implicit in the way they taught us Islam. Mm -hmm. That uh, Islam should be dominant or that, that we should be uh, pluralistic? Oh, that um, Islam should be dominant, mm -hmm. but a little bit, I mean, the word dominant wasn't really used. Sure. But that was the underlying message that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Sharia is the best way to live and everyone should mm -hmm. live according and you know islam should rule the world and if islam ruled the world everything would be great mm -hmm. that i think uh was absolutely true in terms of the way islam was taught until 9 11. and then i think 9 11 changed all of that and so all you youngsters are although you know honey honey is a youngster from my perspective as well but all you youngsters that are uh, post 9 11 the islam you've been taught is exactly y'all as y'all described is this much more uh, accepting pluralistic uh, uh, approach to Islam, whereas pre 9/11, uh, it was this sentiment that you know we are destined and it is our obligation to win. Uh, I would actually say even a few years after 9/11, that, yeah, I think that's fair too. Uh, I think immediately after 9/11, a lot of those voices became even more aggressive. Exactly. Yeah. You know, especially during during the the war talk. You know, uh, in those years immediately after 9-11, things became super, super uh, heated. And so a lot of people really started digging their heels in the sand and such. But yeah, uh, in the years since then, uh, things became much softer. Hamza Yusuf was super, super uh, uh, aggressive. And now he's looked at as this giant apologist. And, and Yasser Qadi was also super aggressive. And he's also softened up uh, uh, quite a bit on all these things. Yeah. And, and so... So here, uh, 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 according to this author, it seems like that's still taught in quite a quite a few different places, not so much in in terms of our society. Uh, all right, uh, Imad, continue. Um, certain dominant strains of Islam demand that it be placed at the center of world politics, and supposedly you are obliged to its servant. Why? Well, because we have a series of well-funded and persuasive voices who tell us daily that Islam is under attack and that we need to be offensive. Is this really the case? I do not believe so. These are shrill voices that have a warped view of the world and have managed to acquire finances and credibility. Okay, so they this is, oh yeah, we'll stop here. This is his polite way to talk about, about uh, Arab oil money and 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 their influence and such and if you replace what he's saying here with islam from islam to christianity uh i think it sounds exactly what we hear from the alt-right in our society you know certain dominant strains of christianity demand that it be placed at the center of world politics and so and supposedly you're obliged to be its servants why because we have a series of well-funded and persuasive voices who tell us daily that christianity is under attack and that we need to be on the offensive. And uh, I think that's what we find in a lot of, of the voices in the, in the alt-right or even in the mainstream GOP right now. And um, can I say something real quick? Please. 
I also feel like in India, the BJP government are using Hinduism in the same way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and so what we see is supremacist ideology. Part of its rhetoric, you know, is, okay, we're better than everyone else, but we're under attack. And therefore, we have to be more and more aggressive. And then they will pick uh, a particular population that is the cause of, of our, uh, our problems. So you see this in every supremacist group, regardless of, of religion, regardless of, of ethnicity and such. Like supremacist movements essentially are people with uh, a shared low self-esteem. And then they overcompensate with a supremacy, a sense of supremacy, and then a blame of someone else. So we touched last time on, uh, you know, that he was saying that the teacher is blaming Jews and Shias for, for problems in the world and such. I had a conversation with, with uh, there's a, the ambassador to the United States from Pakistan, he used to live in Chicago, he used to come to Loyola events. And then I asked him, like, why do you think this is happening in every single part of the world, every single religious tradition, Buddhists, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Christians, everybody. And his suggestion, which I think made a lot of sense, was globalization that you have the regular person who might be a shop owner or a regular job and they're watching the world fly past them uh, fast enough so that they don't know that their job is secure which means they don't know if income or food is secure for them and they're watching prices rise faster than their incomes are rising and so it creates this unsettledness in a whole lot of people and they're also watching, you know, the influences of imperialism in terms of what it's doing to their families and such. And so these, these, uh, uh, these movements are almost like they're saying, here, we're going to take care of you. You know, because even think about what you and I think of when we think of the Klan. So the KKK recruits where I live. You know, they've been, they're in the news periodically. And I'm sure, Imad, where you live, the KKK probably has, has a presence. Uh, especially he lives in Louisville. And does the Klan have a presence in Houston and Texas and such, honey? I don't remember. I'm sure, uh, but not because it was just so urban where I lived. Yeah, right, right. I don't, I don't hear about the Klan as much from Texas, but yeah, across the South and such. And <clears throat> so- I from, live about 10 minutes from where the KKK meets here in Georgia. So like right, they're in Atlanta. every yeah. day, just like you hear about them. Mm-hmm. And so from our perspective, you know, the Klan is literally a white supremacist terrorist organization, right? But from within the perspective of the Klan, how do they look at each other? That we're here to take care of you, you know? And so, so there's this tribalism that people form through the lens of religion, where it becomes more of an identity than a path to salvation. And that's one of the big challenges of the world today, where uh, your Islam is your path to salvation, which then means you have responsibilities like character and justice and compassion, all those things, or an identity, which then focuses more on what we call performance um, and, you know, drawing lines, us versus them, so forth and so on. Okay, um, let's continue. And then, of course, money is going to be a big influence in all of this, too. Uh, Imad, why don't you continue to the next paragraph? They tell you they tell you that the only way Islam is going to take this dominant and deciding position is when Muslims are proper Muslims. This idea is also very simple. You are told that you are not observant enough and only when you are observant to the correct degree, as well as those who surround you, will Islam fl flourish and prosper. 
is your fault that Islam is in this degraded and miserable state. You are shown YouTube videos of outrageous Afghan Mujahideen fighting the might of the Soviet army in the 1980s. You are shown clear videos of the war in Bosnia of the 1990s. More recent and more shocking videos come from the aftermath of the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, where you can watch suicide bombings with powerful Anashid as a accompaniment. These Muslims are true Muslims, as you are told. They have sacrificed their lives for the honor of Islam and the Muslims. These young martyrs are ensconced in heaven today for having made the greatest sacrifice for Islam. They are the model to be emulated for what could be more selfless, noble, and moral than to give up your life for the greater glory of Islam. Okay. Uh, what are some themes that, that are being emphasized in this paragraph? And these are going to be themes that he's going to be criticizing throughout the whole book in terms of this particular presentation of Islam. What do you think? Well, it talks about how younger people are shown things which are not true. Mm -hmm. It's what he talked about before. Yeah, they'll be shown things that are not true or shown things to, to really get an emotional response. Like, look at what all the look at what the kuffar are doing to us. Look at what what the non-believers, the crusaders, are are doing to us and and our people. And then that's going to create a, an emotional response. What else? What else is in this? I think there's also a lot of idealizing. You know, that all right. Uh, we're in a miserable state because nobody's a good Muslim. And so if you're a good Muslim, then all the problems are going to be solved. And then just try to run through the logic, right? So to be a good Muslim, let's say we all are making our prayers perfectly and everything. Are all our problems going to be solved? No. no. Which is, will be a point that we'll be discussing later on in the text. And then on top of that, there's this idealizing of martyrdom. Now, do we have a martyrdom tradition in Islam? Well, we do have teachings about being a shaheed that you go straight to paradise, but we don't have a martyrdom tradition. Christianity has a very strong martyrdom tradition that a lot of people don't realize. Like literally one of the teachings about the church is that the church is built on the blood of martyrs. Who is the ultimate martyr in Christianity? Christ. Christ, right? But what is not emphasized of Christ is the fact that he's a martyr, but that he's given up his life. And then in Protestant Christianity, it's his resurrection. And so, so what do we have? When you look at the heroes pre-20th century, uh, just about every hero of Islam you can mention, their heroism is not as much because of their death, although that might be part of their narrative, like we talked about Imam Hussein. Uh, their heroism is because of their faith. And often, it's their scholarship. And so much of the Muslim narrative until the 20th century was a celebration of faith and scholarship. And so the vast majority of Muslim heroes you can think of until the 20th century uh, will probably one or both of those, those, uh, those uh, attributes. And then what happens in the 20th century is then we, all, we start developing this martyrdom uh, tradition. So part of the greatness of Malcolm X is the fact that he was killed. Part of the greatness of Sayyid Qutb, who you may or may not have heard of, was also because he was killed. 
There's another person who gets celebrated, Omar Mukhtar. Uh, part of his greatness is because he was killed. As though that becomes a badge of authenticity. Now, are they Shaheed? Inshallah, they are. Right? Uh, but the point is that there is this shift that has taken place in the 20th century in terms of what we, uh, what we revere in a person. And this is some of the stuff that he's attacking. The other big point that stands out for me is, is, is the simplistic thinking. And this is something he's also going to be attacking throughout the text, that the world is very complicated. And Dean is, I mean, there's an aspect of Dean that's very simple, but there's also an aspect of Dean that is complex. And so another thing that, you know, I mentioned at the beginning how I like being in my 40s more than my 30s, more than my 20s, so forth and so on. One of the things I also love is just how complicated everything is. That could be the professor in me, but the point is I just love complexity. Simplicity is, is boring. And let's see how much more we have here. Okay, let's stop right here because I, I want to keep our sessions between 30 and 40 minutes. And so someone make a note or a mental note that we're on the paragraph, the latest monstrosity, such and such and such and such. Any last thoughts or questions? Yeah. Um, would it be fair to say that this shift in, um, like the shift towards seeing people who physically give their lives as heroes, would it be fair to say that shift occurs as a response to European colonialism? I think that's definitely part of it. I think part of it is just a sense of defeat that uh, that there is this visceral sense of defeat in our community. And so when Habib beats Conor McGregor in the UFC, it becomes almost like the feeling of a victory of Islam. And when Turkey reopens the Hagia Sophia as a mosque, uh, which is almost like not a barely even a symbolic change, uh, because now basically what it means, you don't have to pay any money to walk in because before it was, it was a, a tourist center and, uh, it, it, it looks, it gets looked at again as a, uh, a victory for Islam. And, and so a lot of, of what we celebrate as huge victories are kind of irrelevant things. And, and I think that relates to a sentiment of defeat that I even think part of the reason that there is this preaching of, you know, Islam should be dominant, it's coming from a sense of defeat. And, and so think about what a goal of this book is, a goal of the way I teach is for you to feel your own innate worth and value because you're Muslim, because you're human, you know, because you've been given all these privileges like education and such. And so <clears throat> imperialism, I think, is part of the big thing, but uh, related to imperialism is just literally this global sense of, of defeat that we're losing. You know, Even when 9-11 happened, a lot of people felt it was a conspiracy. Why? Because they couldn't comprehend that Muslims could come up with something that, that, uh, that clever, which was, you know, which was very, very telling back then. And in contrast, if we were to just look at Muslims in America, the sheer amount of brain power we have uh, which is still raw, I think, can go head-to-head -head against any community, if that was our goal, right? And our wealth level with each couple of years it increases by leaps and bounds as more and more people, you know, develop and such. And, uh, and I think we can provide a whole lot of good driven by Dean, uh, as opposed to driven by Muslim identity. We can provide a whole lot of good for a whole lot of people. You know, most of them are not. Uh, 
but there is this deep sense of self-loathing coming from defeat. And I do think, yeah, Amon, it is connected to imperialism, but uh, I can't blame it on imperialism. You know. Any other questions? All right, then. Uh, we'll stop right here, inshallah. And as mentioned before, these are all recorded. I'm not recording the video, just recording the audio. And I'll, I'll post these. Hina, where am I going to post these? <laughs> SoundCloud. SoundCloud. This is those, uh, those who weren't here last week. A few people uh, had a lot of fun with an old man talking about SoundCloud and his lecture mixtape. Okay, inshallah. Uh, so we will stop right here tomorrow at 5 o'clock for whoever wants to join. It's just going to be open conversation, whatever it is people want to talk about. So as mentioned, usually the conversations eventually go to... Uh, media and gins so we can either start with that or we can eventually end with that but that will be tomorrow inshallah at five o'clock and friday at three o'clock will be games i think this friday we're gonna do kahoot not islamic kahoot because i always lose some other kind of kahoot yeah okay inshallah subhanakallah lake may allah tell the word you all inshallah and we'll see you hopefully at the very latest next week assalamu alaikum warahmatullah